Welcome to the Psychology for Theology series. Theology is reflection on God and God's relationship to all things, but especially to human beings. Psychology is the scientific study of the thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors of those human beings. But usually these domains are siloed. Blueprint 1543 takes an integrated approach. Because in order to live full lives, solve big problems, and serve the culture, we'll need to draw on many different domains of knowledge. But as intellectual as some of this work is, we don't want these how, when, and why questions to feel disembodied and out there. We think this work matters because it actually makes a difference in people's lives, including yours. This is an eight-part series with a free downloadable workbook available in the show notes. We hope you enjoy. This project was made possible through the support of a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. I wonder why you chose St. Andrews to do your PhD over there. The answer to why something happened always has to be a serendipitous coalescence of all sorts of accidents of history. The easy answer would probably be we were, my wife and I met at Moody Bible Institute, and we were both theology majors. And then when we got married, we knew very clearly what we wanted to do. I was worship pastoring all through my time at Moody. And then I realized that was a way of figuring out what I really felt called to, which was theological, really teaching. I loved, loved reading and learning and wanted to teach. And to this day, like I love students. It's what I live for. I knew I wanted to do that. And we started looking at schools and St. Andrews was top of the list because they had an institute for theology, imagination, and the arts. And I was really interested in that. We applied and got in, but after applying, we saw there was a new institute called the Logos Institute. They're like, what is this? Analytic and exegetical theology. Tom Wright was one of the professors and we loved N.T. Wright. Nice. And Alan Torrance. Alan Torrance eventually became my doctoral supervisor, but his father, J.B. Torrance, and his uncle, T.F. Torrance, were both super influential in our formation at Moody. It was like, wow, we wrote our theses separately on the Torrance Scottish theologians, and here's a live one teaching people. How cool would this be to go? So, And of course, you're like an and interested in the arts and music too. If you're interested in trauma studies too, I feel like the arts are nearby because sometimes I feel like the perfect response to the problem of evil is some kind of ineffable beauty thing, <laughs> to put it vaguely. There's something so important there about the role of the arts in responding to those questions. Oh my gosh. I mean, trauma is, you can't put it into words. Trauma is a terror of the imagination. Clinically, it, it always has been. And so to learn to speak a language that heals, that goes beyond the intellectual, that touches the affective and the imaginary, it's, yeah, critical. So I knew Scott Harrower first. Scott Harrower came to our first Theopsych seminar, and it was really lovely to meet him. He's such a delightful guy. He is. And you know, he's Australian and and so kind and sweet, and but also has this dark side, like... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like we got to talking about horror, horror films and literature and stuff. And I was like, oh, Scott, were you like a goth in high school? I'm getting a vibe like you were a goth. And then Joshua King came to our second seminar. 
And that's where I got to know him. And you co-wrote a book, the three of you. Scott told me at some point, but maybe you should tell the story. Tell, tell me how you got to be writing this book. It's called The Dawn of Sunday. And the subtitle is The Trinity and Trauma Safe Churches. You're so right. Scott is infectiously joyful. And there's a delightful, morbid side to him. And he is just such a fun person that comes through in his writing too. Deeply pastoral, deeply committed to bearing faithful witness to the wounds of trauma and horrors and not minimizing them, but also having this joyful openness to the possibility of healing, recovery, that doesn't pretend like everything's quickly fixed, but there's some genuine life. There's some kind of post-traumatic life that's possible. And so I found that very attractive because during my doctoral studies, I researched Christ's descent into hell in Christian theology. Quickly found out that intersects with themes of God's relation to the, the bottom, the underside of human suffering. So I came into dialogue with lots of people engaged at the intersection of theology and trauma. And I was just really compelled by that and it captivated my attention. I secured some funding to put on a, and this is how we met. I got some funding to put on a church conference in St. Andrews. And we, we partnered with the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and the Islander Center, who do a lot of work on sexual abuse, sexual trauma and recovery. So it was such a fun thing to like literally fly them over to have a conference where we brought together psychologists, therapists, philosophers, theologians to talk about theology in the aftermath of violence and trauma. It was an incredible time. Part of that was we had a book group. Josh Cocaine was lecturing at St. Andrews while I was doing my PhD. So he and I started a book group because at the same time I was putting on this conference, he and I both were interested in Scott's book at that point, God of All Comfort, A Trinitarian Response to the Horrors of This World. And so we had a book group where we read the book together with other people interested in theology and trauma. Josh and I separately wrote reviews of Scott's book where we basically said, thank you so much. We love everything you've said. And we think you should say something more about this. Scott came back and said, hey, thanks so much. I agree. Why don't we do it together? As it turns out, critiquing someone can lead to collaboration. He's the best. To bring others in to that project is great because he's going to replicate himself and you're all going to teach each other things. So that's beautiful. Absolutely. So what was the goal of the book? What's the book trying to accomplish and who is it for? The book is for students in pastoral ministry, pastoral theology, even just theology more generally. Anyone in the helping fields who wants a basic understanding of trauma from a Christian perspective, who wants to take it seriously and to not minimize it, but who also doesn't want to say that in order to take it seriously, you can never talk about any kind of healing or recovery. That was a deep ambition we shared that marks the book is there tends to be a split between some people who, for the sake of what they perceive to be like being faithful to the gospel or faithful to Christian truth means you need to minimize the reality of harm in some way. So there's a fear of naming just how bad things are because if we do, it might undermine our witness. And then on the other hand, there's the crowd of people who are reacting against that view and saying, in order to bear faithful witness to trauma, you have to recognize that it is an almost an eternal rupture that has an absolute zero of no healing or recovery possible. 
And I think this is indicative of all sorts of splits you could name between conservatives and liberals, modernity, post-modernity. A lot of this is in dialogue with structuralism or post-structuralism, all sorts of things that trauma theory is very popular in forms of literary theory where the emphasis is what makes trauma trauma is that you can never recover from it. And I think many people love that. They appreciate scholars recognizing the intractableness of the wound. But when you also take the clinical perspective of looking at real world survivors, they want some hope that some kind of life is possible, some kind of recovery is possible. So we wanted to strike that balance. That's why we chose the metaphor of Dawn of Sunday. A lot of that crowd I was mentioning, they talk about Holy Saturday as an absolute site of rupture where death has persisted. It's not Good Friday. It's not Easter Sunday. Holy Saturday feels like trauma. It's after the wound. And we wanted to say, okay, we don't want to be triumphalist and we don't want to rush quickly to Easter Sunday and just clap our hands, pretend everything's better. But is it possible just to be open that there might be a dawn? So that's the approach we're trying to take this. We call it a double witness. We want to witness the losses and laments, but also the taking a non-competitive view of the relation between wounding and healing. And we think that speaks to actual survivor experience. I guess I wasn't really aware that there are some people that have that push for that once traumatized, always traumatized kind of position, that pessimistic view of healing. I wonder what the appeal of that view is. Is it just going too far in trying to really appreciate the woundedness of the person? Yeah, that's exactly it. That's And that's the way the claim is framed. I'm thinking of the work of people like Kathy Carruth in trauma theory or the way that that's been applied to theology and the work of folks like Shelley Rambo, who have recognized even Shelley Rambo's most recent book, Resurrecting Wounds, that I think this is sort of her offering a corrective to her previous work along these same lines, that to speak of healing doesn't necessarily mean you're not taking the wound seriously. Right. And that was the previous impetus. I think you're right about that. Interesting. Okay. The book is deeply theological. And you talked about the event you hosted, which sounds like it was really rich, rich conversation around trauma in theological context. Can you talk about what is important about a theological conversation about trauma? Well, number one, if we take trauma seriously, it raises the stakes on classic theological questions. The typical Christian narrative is that something is broken with the world and something about God in Christ redeems or heals this problem of the world. And when you introduce trauma, you're introducing a variant of suffering, the defining feature of which is that there is no clean linear path to healing. So trauma throws a metaphysical wrench into the Christian doctrine of atonement and Christian questions of theodicy. The problem of evil all of a sudden becomes... You're just raising the stakes on it by talking about trauma. So I think if we're going to take trauma seriously, it forces us to review some theological claims we've made that maybe were easier in other conversations, but are more difficult in this conversation. Mm -hmm. But if we don't take it seriously, you're losing people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, like the claim that Christian theology makes is that this speaks to, this isn't just a nice idea. This is a narrative that's either true or it isn't of the whole world. So if it's going to be true of this world, the only world we have is the one that's traumatized. The narrative has to be able to hold the existence of trauma because that's part of the human experience. 
Maybe I should have done this sooner. Do you have a definition of trauma on hand that you use? I do. And it's funny you say, because it's taken me a long time to arrive at this. At various times, I've offered a definition and then someone says, hey, what about this? And I'm like, yeah, I got to redress it a little bit. So I, maybe it's just perpetually an ongoing work of revision. But one I've landed on that seems like it really, really fits well from all sides, like philosophical, theological, clinical, scientific. And this comes from Bessel van der Kolk and others. Trauma is an inescapably stressful event that overwhelms someone's coping mechanisms. I love that definition because it has all the pieces. You encounter a threat. You're powerless to escape. It's inescapable. As a result of being unable to escape, it overwhelms your moral framework to understand the experience. That's the key feature is my subjective unit of measure of what the world should be like can't handle this experience. And the defining trait of not being able to handle it is it's a threat to my flourishing and I'm powerless to escape. I can't change it. That's really interesting. I had like a taste of this once where my husband and I were at a mall, an outdoor shopping mall. And what actually happened was someone attempted to rob a jewelry store. The security guard fired his weapon. It was a huge mall. It's in California. This happened very far from where we were, but it started a chain reaction event because the mall was very busy of people believing there was an active shooter situation in progress, even though one gun went off one round. But it started a wave of a panicked crowd. And we were in a store looking at the glass front and just saw a massive crowd of people running for their lives. (laughs) and. It was terrifying. Like, it's like something you see in a movie, right? Like a massive crowd of people running for their lives. And we had no idea what was going on. Whatever our natural responses were to threat, like kicked in. I did sort of a weird, kind of like a spy move where I like moved towards the front of the store, but like hiding myself, like to investigate. I don't know. I didn't even think about it. I just did it. And then the managers made us all hide in the dressing rooms for like the next hour. It was so harrowing. And then especially after the fact, knowing what actually happened. But we were for a few days, like maybe a week, not okay. We felt really shaken like you would after like a bad car accident or something. We felt like our brains were foggy and not working correctly. It checks those boxes of the definition of overwhelm, of threat, of of stress and all those things that you bring up and are not knowing how to process it really. What I love about that story is that like, that's perfect because you didn't know, no one knew that there wasn't actually an active shooter, but that's not the point. The point of trauma is the subjective experience of it. Right. And everyone has a different response. I think that's what I was trying to say. Like, it doesn't matter if the threat is real or not. If you feel threatened, then the trauma is able to occur, right? Based on the available information. That's the key defining feature. This is the only psychological diagnosis of its kind that a key feature of it is irreducibly subjective. Two people can experience the same event and it will traumatize one and it won't traumatize the other. And that's because everyone sees the world differently. That's one of the challenges of destigmatizing trauma is not presuming that you know what it's like to be someone going through something. Totally. Yeah. We started talking about the importance of the theological angle, but not specifically 
the Trinitarian angle, which is a big chunk of the book. What's important about taking that Trinitarian theology and connecting it to trauma studies? And that's probably enough for one question. So. <laughs> well, certainly. The Trinity clearly is a big enough question to be one on its own, as the Christian tradition showed us. Yeah, a lot of charts and bad analogies have been created to try to understand why Christians think God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Absolutely. I think the easiest answer to say, first of all, it's not the case that we thought this would just be a nice, helpful way of framing it. I think we think there is a fundamental connection between an approach to trauma that is truly Christian and an approach to trauma that takes trauma seriously on its own terms. We think you can't escape talking about the triune nature of God in that. And that's because just the thing we were just talking about, trauma is an irreducibly relational experience of any kind because it involves your assessment of an external threat. So for example, we know that the prevalence rates of PTSD following a non-interpersonal form of trauma, like natural disaster or a car accident are significantly less. The rates jump, they boggle the mind in terms of statistics for when the trauma is interpersonal in nature. When you introduce moral agency, it drastically heightens the rates of a post-traumatic syndrome that really cause distresses and disturbances. But in either case, whether it's interpersonal or not, you're always engaging a threat that's outside of you. It's not just in your head. With other diagnoses, you might ask, is this just in my head? But with trauma, you literally can't even ask that question because it involves your response to an event of threat, which raises the question of who am I in this world? What's my relation to this world? Judith Herman, the classic work on trauma that opened this up for everyone, trauma and recovery. She's just a psychiatrist. She's not a Christian, so far as I know. She doesn't write on Christian theology and trauma, but in her book, she says very clearly, trauma makes the survivor a theologian, a philosopher, and a jurist, because it raises these existential questions. So why the Trinity? Trauma is an irreducibly relational experience. It's your relation with yourself and the external world. The Christian doctrine of God as Trinity is very minimally to say that relationality is not something secondary to God's identity. Relationality is at the heart. When God made the world, he didn't learn a new skill of how to relate to an other. He's eternally been relating to an other within himself. So there's this strange coincidence of alterity and identity at the heart of God, that otherness relating to others. It would seem significant that if trauma is a relational wounding and healing never happens in isolation, that's another feature of trauma recovery. For example, Vietnam veterans, they actually found that after a combat veteran experiences post-traumatic stress, if you take them off the field, their post-traumatic stress gets worse. If you send them back to stay with their combat unit, it helps mitigate against the post-traumatic stress. That's one of the key things of recovery. Community is absolutely vital to reducing post-traumatic stress. So again, there's this interpersonal aspect to trauma and recovery. And if that is something secondary to God, then that would make it much more difficult to understand how God would relate. 
But there's this wealth of a Christian resource to say that God eternally knows in himself how to relate in a benevolent way. And his relationality is so expansive that it's able to hold the violence of the world. That's one way to say what the cross is about. So this is our attempt to try to understand the Christian narrative in a way that takes seriously trauma. So God is relational, trauma is relational, to be human is to be relational. Let's talk about that. I'll quickly cross-reference in this series of conversations I'm working on right now. I had a conversation with Pam Epstein-King, and she talks about this a lot in that conversation. She's a psychologist. She wrote a book called The Reciprocating Self. I love that book. Yeah, so she really emphasizes this point. Her anthropology from a developmental perspective, too, is just how relational a human being is. And to the extent that the unit of study, speaking now like in psychological science terms, can almost never be just a human because a human living without relationships, it doesn't happen. There's always a relationship network or ecosystem around a person and then the, the, the environment as well. And then you as a theologian saying, oh, well, where did we get that from? Where did we get this hypersociality, hyper-relationality from? From God's self, right? That might be a part of our Imago Deus. I don't know if we want to get into like... No, I was just going to say, like, it would be a quite a strange state of affairs if we were highly relational, like you're saying, which we clearly are, and we're the image of a God who is less relational than we are. That would be a strange state of affairs. But what we have in the Christian tradition is to say God is Trinity is not a divine math problem. It's to say that in God, eternally, irreducibly, there's a lover, a beloved, and a desire to share that love outside of the two. Mm-hmm. That is the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is already always open relationally outside himself. He's ecstatic. He goes outside himself, stands forth to the world. Say we have a Christian person trying to heal from trauma. Do you think there is a therapeutic benefit to learning and absorbing these theological categories? I would think from, yeah, unreservedly, yes. I teach theology and clinical theory, psychology, to master's level counseling students who come from a Christian background. And many of them, as we know in the helping fields, they come because they've experienced some kind of healing and recovery. And a key thing I find is, and this is part of what we might call a deconstruction process for many of these students, is they're trying to regain a picture of God, if at all possible, that is more expansive and capable of holding the complexities of human experience that we'll just say the late modern West has not excelled at in something like American Christianity. When I introduce to them the doctrine of the Trinity, they are expecting a math problem. And I refuse to give them that. Instead, we talk about Richard of St. Victor's argument from love for the Trinity, that to say God is triune is to take seriously the claim that God is love before he even relates with the world. He is already love in himself. That has to have implications for your big picture view of the world. So it does for them. I mean, they say so clinically, like with my colleagues in their work and the private practice that I'm a part of here, we see it. And in my own experience, I've seen that as well. Absolutely. So I think 
there are all sorts of proofs to be had that regaining a spiritually formative understanding of theology might actually hold very positive psychological benefits for people. Very cool. Good answer. It seems that your book is supposed to be the first in a series. A series. I think that's wonderful because, well, first of all, everyone should know it's only like a 200 page book. It's very digestible, very quick read. But that also means there's a lot more to say and a lot more particulars to get into. I'm glad it's going to be part of a series and the publisher seems invested in that. It's the first in a series called New Studies in Theology and Trauma. So we already have you know, ours. And then there's one on trauma-informed preaching called Unspeakable, which is a great title for that. There's one forthcoming by Deborah Van Dusen Hunsinger, who's been really influential in the world of trauma and pastoral care. It's really exciting some of the things we have coming out with it. The publisher is super supportive. Do you want to just give us a little sneak peek of some of the practical stuff you put towards the end of the book for someone listening and wondering, okay, you're talking about trauma-safe churches. Like, what moves us in that direction? Well, it's my favorite part of the book. It's like where the rubber hits the road. Everyone today is interested in trauma in the church. To even use the phrase trauma-safe church. I remember when we stumbled on that as authors, I think Josh Cockaine first suggested it. And we were like, yes, that is it. That's what we're getting at. How does reclaiming a big, expansive, hopeful vision of what's actually essential to the Christian tradition, which is God's triune identity? It's not politics. It's not sexuality. What are Christians, what have they always been actually about? Trinity, incarnation, death and resurrection, these things. What difference would that make to having a church that's trauma safe? So we go into that in the last couple chapters, which were so fun to write the sneak preview, we put forward this hypothesis that you might need more things to be trauma safe, but we think that no church will be trauma safe without these four elements. And so we call these the four principles of a trauma safe church. First of all is an unapologetic, absolute commitment to doing no harm, the Hippocratic commitment of a church. And then there's what we see to be a common cultural objection that might be raised to it. And we try to address those. So for that one, the objection might be well, if we commit all out to do no harm, then we're going to be hindering our public image or mobility. There's the concern that if we air out our dirty laundry and we're really committed to mandatory reporting and avoiding abuse, then we're going to hinder our public witness. That's the concern you often hear. But then we just point out that's great reasoning. It's just not what Jesus said. Jesus is very clear. How can God's love be in you if you don't take care of the least? And the world will know that you're mine and by your unity and your love for one another. So that's the equation. The world's going to know that you're my followers and I'm Lord if you love one another and you don't have my love if you don't care for the most vulnerable. <laughs> so what Jesus is saying is not only will calling out abuse not hurt your public witness, it'll be the most powerful form of a public witness. And doesn't it look a lot worse if you don't have best practices around abuse? It comes out later and it's a much worse public witness. <laughs> Right. Not only that there was abuse. Yeah. Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah. Not only that there was abuse, but that there were all these terrible practices around it, the way victims were treated and the way it was covered up and the way people were protected who shouldn't have been protected and all those sorts of things. Okay. So that makes sense. That makes sense. Team Jesus. I'm with Team Jesus. Team team Jesus. Okay. (laughs) You're convinced. You're following. Yeah. Team Jesus on that one, which takes us to the next point, which is listen, listen to survivors. A trauma-safe church is never afraid to bear uncensored witness to the testimony of survivors. 
this goes back into that same theme. What we say is a practical implication of that is you always take allegations seriously before you have further evidence. Innocent until proven guilty does not apply here. And it shouldn't apply here. That doesn't mean you believe that they're guilty. What it means is you hit pause on everything and you treat it as if it were true until you have more information. Because it's always better to be safe than sorry. Right. To make sure no further harm doesn't occur in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And some people might say to that, well, then you're harming the public image of the church. And it's just a question of there's a zero point where we either have to choose between the safety of our members or our public image and finances. We need to make the faithful choice. That's just what it comes down to. So we just put that forward. We at least want to try saying that because it seems like people have been really slow to say that. And we don't really see the harm in taking that position. And we use the example of if someone throws a Frisbee at me, says, hey, Preston, think fast. I cover my face. Now, if they were just kidding and there was no harm, I'm not going to be sorry I covered my face. No one's going to be like, you're so stupid for trying to cover your face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So like, what's the worst that can happen? Always better safe than sorry. So that's just listen and take survivors seriously. The last two are empowering survivors for restoration. And this is a really important one. The idea here is that to be a trauma-safe church is to be a church that doesn't stigmatize survivors and reinforce the powerless, stigmatized identity, but says to them, it's not, what can I do for you or to you? It's, what can I do with you? The trauma-safe church says, to survivors, we trust you with your story and we would love to come alongside you in the journey that you think is best. The reason that's important is because, as I said earlier, trauma is all about powerlessness. Empowerment is therefore always the fundamental first step of recovery. And if you don't let someone know they're empowered, you're going to risk re-traumatizing them. We've seen this over and over again in the history of things. So one practical way is, hey, Invite survivors to active ministry. Let them know that you don't see them as fundamentally broken or flawed. You think they have something valuable, even in their woundedness. I think that's important for also engaging efforts for greater inclusivity in church ministry. And the last one is just a really simple one, is engage and bless the body. Trauma survivors, we all know by now, Bessel van der Kolk, the body keeps the score. Trauma is a uniquely embodied experience, sensory experience. You just can't be trauma safe if you're not willing to engage the body. So we need to have churches that take embodiment seriously, that aren't afraid of the messiness of the embodiment of trauma. So even just simple things like just ask someone before touching them. For a survivor, it can be just overwhelming just to be surprised with touch. We could just make our churches so much safer by giving people the dignity of having them set their own boundaries for their body. And for some reason, churches historically haven't been good at that. We have not. So those are how we try to go towards like principles and we outline some practices. Those are great starting places and very practical and folks should read the book. We're going to pivot a little bit because I asked you to help me with a few questions that came in through some folks who've gone through our Theosite classes, which we have on our website. Some folks who just follow us on social media and people who want to understand psychology better. And there were some questions, most of the questions were towards psychologists, but I invited you on to speak as a theologian who's very psychologically informed. And they revealed that there's still a bit of diversity in the Christian world about how people perceive psychology and therapy, professional psychological counseling, 
there's still some mystique around it, including the question, can a genuine Christian struggle with mental health problems? What's the evidence? And whatever your answer is, can you back it up with the Bible, with science, with whatever? And maybe before you respond to the question directly, what do you hear in that question? Like, what kind of concerns do you hear in in that kind of question, Preston? Yeah, it's it's such a because I recognize the question. I feel like I've in my own journey, I've asked it as well. So I feel like I can understand it. But it does seem like genuine, committed Christian faith, adequate Christian experience might be incommensurate with mental illness, that there's an inverse relationship between mental illness and Christian faith, or that if you have the right kind of experience of Christian faith, it will almost always mean mental health. That's at least one of the assumptions. I think there might be reasons for questioning that assumption. We don't know what mental health crises this person had in mind, but anxiety and depression are quick go-tos. They're the most common. Often they come together. The scriptures ask us to rejoice and be not afraid and literally don't be anxious. Be anxious for nothing, depending on what translation you have. The assumption that someone of faith is indwelled by the Holy Spirit and maybe wouldn't struggle with these things, actually. And there's some culpability there, maybe. If If you are experiencing those things, maybe you're not a true believer or you're actively sinning in some way. What are some of the things that make this problematic in your view, or maybe biblically, theologically, would allow for that to not be the case? That's, that's actually a great example of kind of the main thing that comes to me in the question, the example of anxiety. So we've got a Bible verse that says, don't be anxious. There is a moral command to not have an experience called anxiety. And then we have people who really want to be faithful to God, but are experiencing anxiety. So there are a couple of different ways of parsing that. But I think one of the assumptions, if we're following the presumption of this question, the assumption there might be that when the Bible says anxiety, and when the DSM or psychopathology says anxiety, that we're talking about more or less just the exact same thing. I think it's worth thinking whether or not those really are the same thing. That's because number one, we're dealing with two different thought worlds two different disciplines with different conceptual norms, different methods of validation, either empirically or, I mean, just just to draw one line, psychology is a descriptive discipline. Theology traditionally is a normative discipline. One is describing phenomena encountered in the world. The other is describing or prescribing what should be the case about the world. So it brings us back to that old David Hume question. What's the relationship between ought and is? Psychology is describing what is. Theology is describing what ought to be. And at the very least, we can just make that conceptual distinction, even if in lived experience, these things come to us at the same time. We can always conceptually distinguish even what is encountered at one and the same time existentially. Can someone be a genuine Christian and experience mental illness? Number one, I think... Most of us, if we survey our experience of the world, we have an anecdotal empirical proof of this, that this is possible. And that's simply because many of us, if not most or all of us, have probably encountered someone who for all apparent purposes seems like a genuine Christian and has some sort of mental illness that they're experiencing or mental health challenge. So we have there an empirical proof, if you like, from just common experience of others. 
But I think also there's an experiential proof that many of us have had this experience of, I genuinely want to love God. I'm genuinely committed Christian. Whatever standard you want to use to say, I'm a genuine Christian, however you measure genuineness. And I'm having some kind of mental health challenge, whether that's anxiety that I just don't have control over or depression after you know the loss of a loved one and prolonged complicated bereavement and a grief process. Or like I know for me personally, having post-traumatic stress, and this is part of my interest in trauma and theology, post-traumatic stress symptoms from my childhood that I still live with to this day. There are some that have subsided with wonderful therapeutic treatment and interventions. But to this day, I still have some chronic forms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And for me, I've never seen that as evidence that either Jesus doesn't love me or I don't love Jesus. All that is just to say we have experiential and empirical proof that this is possible. But when you look at the Bible and theology, move from the descriptive to the normative, you survey the biblical data and you find that the evidence is multivalent. It's not, it doesn't clearly point one way. So sure, you can find characters in the Bible, for example, who anachronistically, we could describe them in terms of having some kind of mental illness. And they were clearly people who are unfaithful to God. But we also have evidence the exact opposite, that there are people who loved God, were faithful as God's people, and experienced what we would maybe today describe as some kind of resembles mental illness. So for example, the Psalms of Lament, where you have David describing the kind of hypervigilance you'd normally associate with anxiety symptoms, or you know the depressive symptoms of not wanting to eat, not wanting to get out of bed, or even post-traumatic symptoms. And this all really gets heightened when you look at the person of Jesus, like who it's a classic Christian claim that Jesus experienced, he was never sinful, but he did experience the infirmities of soul, the infirmities of mind. Many Christians don't know it's actually has become a heresy in Christian theology to say that Jesus never experienced any psychological distress. One of them is called Apollinarianism. The other is called monothelitism. We have classic theological reasons for thinking it's important to say Jesus shared himself in the fullness of the infirmities of mental life. And all the while, he was completely morally sinless. So I think what this establishes for us is moral culpability and mental experience can't be reduced to one linear causal sequence. They can operate not completely independently, but in variable ways. One final consideration might be that I think part of the assumption behind that question also is that all mental illness has to do with personal moral culpability. And it's certainly the case that people who make certain choices that are morally questionable definitely have mental health consequences that result from that. That's obviously true. But you know what's also true (laughs) is that people experience mental health consequences not for their own decisions, but from the decisions of others. I can have anxiety or depression or post-traumatic stress or complicated grief for things that I have no control over, things that other people do to me. So I think part of this question brings us back to the maybe very late modern Western notion of individualized views of sin and guilt. Whereas if you actually look at the Old Testament, there's quite a collectivist view of sin and culpability that says someone might have mental health challenges because of the sin of another person. 
or an entire group of people. So again, I think all of that data together, at the very least, what it can help us do is say, I don't think we can write out of hand that it's impossible to be a genuine Christian and also experience mental health struggles. We're in a lot of ground there. Now you knew you were just the guy for the job, Preston. Very cool. Okay, let's move on to the next one. The question around when a person should seek counseling beyond just their pastor. So we've talked about the role of the church in being supportive of someone with mental health challenges who are experiencing mental health difficulties. But so maybe speaking to your perspective around when professional counseling would be a good idea or, or stepping outside? For me, it's this is such a like deliciously hairy question because it is just so, and I totally love those words for it because it feels like it describes it. It's just so nitty gritty, particular, concrete, but also for me, because I actually have a private practice out of my office where I see clients as a in the state of Tennessee, a clinical pastoral therapist. So this is one of the few states in the U.S. that actually licenses ministers to have adequate training to practice as a mental health professional. And so I literally just this past semester. I'm sorry, I have to stop here. <laughs> I didn't know this existed. What kind of training or how did, what did you need to do in order to get that sort of certification? It's the same. So it's the state licensing board that oversees it. So it's the same standards as any LPC professional counselor or marriage and family therapist. It's just like that, except instead of specializing in marriage and family therapy, I'm specializing in religion and spirituality and counseling. But it's all the same clinical standards as a typical master's degree in clinical mental health. So it's all the same standards, but it just has that extra dimension of religion and spirituality. And the counseling profession is much more variable than most people realize. I was just teaching a class this past semester talking about this issue in our school of ministry to a group of pastors about when to refer. When do you refer out to a mental health professional? And so the way the question was worded, you could ask it two ways. One is for pastors, when do I know when I'm outside my scope of practice and I need to refer out? But another one is if you're a client or a congregant or a parishioner, how do I know when I need to see someone either instead of or in addition to my pastor? It's a super, obviously super important question because what it really comes down to is our modern world of advances in scientific knowledge comes at the price of hyper-specialization in our various fields of knowledge. So there really is no such thing as a scientist. There is a biologist. But there really isn't anything as a biologist. It's a molecular biologist, right? There's all these sub-disciplines, hyper-specialities. And the wonderful thing about that is it creates a division of labor where one person can really know how to speak to one issue, another person doesn't. But what that makes important is we have to know how to stay in our lane and we have to have networks of communication between these professionals. And I think part of the sad thing is pastors often feel like they need to be a jack of all trades and they need to have all the answers. And I think there's a fear that if I refer to a mental health professional, it means that I'm being unfaithful to the healing promises of the gospel. But again, right there is an assumption about how psychology and theology relate that may be an unexplored assumption that we would want to explore. 
But having said all that, obviously, I know this raises so many more questions than it answers. But to answer the specific question, I do think there are some general rules that most people would agree with that that bears out in people's experiences. Just some general rules of thumb for if you're a pastor, when to refer out, or if you're a congregant, when to go see a mental health professional. The general rule of thumb, and I'll give some practical, like concrete examples, but the general rule of thumb would be if you think you need it, you probably do. And as simple as that sounds, but honestly, curiosity almost never lies. If you, if you think, if you have a suspicion, you probably should. And I'll follow that up by saying, what's the worst that can happen if you do? So we have a rule in this, in the helping professions of be liberal with your referrals. Refer. If you think there's any question, refer. Because the worst that can happen is that someone saw someone and hopefully they were still helped, but maybe, no, it wasn't needed. And I can go back or I can go to another. So there's no harm, no foul. Always better safe than sorry. I keep returning to that rule. Better safe than sorry. But I think there are some also concrete cases where if you're a pastor, you really, really do want to refer. Or if you're a congregant, you want to really think hard about going and seeing a mental health professional. Number one would be um, crisis situations. Any case in which there's a severe crisis. Examples of that would be suicidality. If you have any, any suicidal ideation at all involved in the situation, see a mental health professional. Like, if you've ever even just fantasized, go see a mental health professional. If there's a conflict of interest between you and the pastor, in other words, if the pastor is the one with whom you have a problem, number one, don't go see that pastor about the problem. That's a conflict of interest. And number two, you might want to think about even going and seeing another pastor in that church. I mean, that would be one step of avoiding it. But the truth is, many pastors just aren't clear about the confidentiality when parishioners come to them. I know for me, it was super meaningful, someone I consider a spiritual father. And this is what I love about liturgical traditions, like the Anglican tradition. He said to me very clearly in a meeting, like, this is under the collar. And what you say here, I won't share with any of the other priests here. And I know I really appreciated that, but I know that many pastors just aren't clear about that. If there's a case of even like abuse from a pastor, don't, I would hasten you to go see at the very least another trusted friend outside the situation. So just avoid conflicts of interest, basically. Another one would be any suspicion of abuse, child abuse, elder abuse, sexual abuse, psychological, emotional abuse, any form of abuse. First of all, it's illegal not to report it. That's mandatory reporting. So if you're in the US, please look up your mandatory reporting laws. I know there are equivalents all around the world, but these are the kind of situations that mental health professionals are uniquely trained to address. And there just doesn't need to be any stigma or any, any fear or shame for a pastor to refer out or for a congregant to go see a mental health professional. I just keep coming back to there's no fear in love. There's no shame in love. There's no threat. Real divine love is not threatened. So go see, go see liberally. And again, what's the worst that can happen? The general rule is if you think you need it, go for it and just be more safe than sorry. And for pastors... And for all mental health professionals, just stay in your lane. Just stay in your lane, know your scope of practice, be clear about it. And it's, a, it's an honor to refer. It's not shameful. It's an honor to refer. Yeah, like you could be the hero, right? Like if, that's, if it's an ego thing for you, <laughs> be the hero who refers someone to someone who will really help them. Your church will probably massively grow also if you start doing that. 
<laughs> nice. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And I'll cross-reference here in the same conversation series. I talked to psychologist Lindsay Root Luna at Hope College, who is a clinical psychologist and a researcher of forgiveness. But part of my conversation with her was helping discern once you decided to go see a professional therapist, some pointers on if you don't have a good referral system, someone you know, but some questions you can ask. And I'm sure, Preston, you would probably reiterate this. It's like you can go in and it might not be the right person the first time if you go see a professional clinical psychologist. And you can trust your instincts if someone just makes you uncomfortable or if they answer a question weird. You can say, I want a Christian therapist. They're always required by the APA to respect your religious beliefs, but you can bring that into counseling and say, if you're at all anxious that they won't respect your values as a Christian, you can just verbalize that and say that. They might say, I'm not the right fit and refer you to someone else or something like that. So if there's anything you want to add to that. Oh, I just want to like highly agree that for the APA, for psychologists, also for the ACA, for licensed counselors, it's literally a condition of the license that you uphold a code of ethics. And one of the standards is you cannot impose your values on the client. You have to bracket your values. When you pay for therapy, you go in and you have the say over everything, just like medical treatment. It's your say. So you never need to be shy about saying, I'm not comfortable with you. Counselors and psychologists have been trained to know what to do when you say you're not comfortable with them. They have been trained to know what to do. So you'll be doing them a compliment if you trust them enough to even say that. But an important fit is like so important. You have to shop for the right therapist. Yeah, it can be some work. But once you find the right person, when you're matched with a good therapist, it is awesome. It is life-changing and super helpful. What does flourishing faithfulness look like when a person is struggling with a mental health issue? I know all the sidebars about mental health is a big umbrella term and can look like a lot of different things. But what comes to mind for you, Preston, with this question as someone who struggled with PTSD and what does that even mean to you? Man, well, I think the first thing is I just appreciate the question. I just appreciate that there are groups of people who really think this is an important question to ask. And it makes me think of the work of people like John Swinton or Tasia Scruton in the UK, dealing with what's it look like to flourish in your relationship with God with mental illness, not necessarily having fixed the mental illness. I think that's Part of the question is mental health is not an absolute precondition for communion with God. God is willing to have communion with you regardless of the state of your mental health. I think that's something important to recognize. So then it becomes an exciting question of what's it look like to have flourishing in relationship with God or as a Christian in the midst of mental illness. And I mean, a banal answer is to say it's as variable as the number of people there are who have this experience. I think it's important to say is like distress, flourishing is a very subjective experience. And one person's flourishing may look very, very different from another person's. So I think that's important to underscore and recognize. But I don't think that makes it totally amorphous. I do think there are some recognizable features of what it looks like to flourish, 
even in the midst of mental health challenges or struggles. There's a good image that I found really helpful that I've actually used in some of my classes that comes from Tasia Scruti. And it has to do with one model of how many people have been taught to think about mental illness and flourishing with God is what she calls the duck rabbit view. And it comes from that picture of a duck and a rabbit. It's like, which is it? Is it a duck or is it a rabbit? Those pictures that are optical illusions. And you can look at it one way, but if you turn your eyes and your brain a little bit, then you see the other image. But it's never both at the same time. It's either or. I'll find one and I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. Just in case people don't know what you're talking about. But I I do know you're talking about that. Yeah. (laughs) That's one way to think is like, it's either flourishing or it's mental illness. It's either a dark night of the soul that's part of a, part of an experience of purgation, of being stripped of worldly desires to be brought into union with God, or it's clinical depression. And maybe it's not the duck rabbit. Maybe there's another model for understanding the relationship between a dark night of the soul and depression. Maybe, and I love the images Tasia uses, but it's ones like the honeysuckle on a broken fence view, or the tangled plants Just like you might find a decrepit, broken fence, but beautiful honeysuckles are growing on it. Or you might find a beautiful flower that's tangled up with a thorny weed. As I said earlier, flourishing and mental illness often go together in our experience. Even if we can conceptually distinguish them, they're still experienced at one and the same time. And so maybe part of what flourishing looks like is I can find places, even in the midst of this mental illness or distress, on the surface of the broken fence, maybe I can still find, even though there's real struggles, moments of surrender to God, of communion with God, of a willingness to suffer, not just being subject to what's happening to me, but this kind of dignity of human agency to say, even though in spite of all this that I'm experiencing, I'm still open to God. I'm still open to finding beauty in the world. I'm still open to joy and communion. And I think that's important because it brings us to what we're seeing now in the mental health fields and even in psychology and neurosciences, in some senses, a recovery of the existential, a recovery of phenomenology, a recovery of the choice people make. You know, someone I teach a lot, we have a course here called Theodicy and Trauma that I teach. And one person we read for the class is Viktor Frankl, the psychiatrist who survived the Holocaust and his development of logotherapy and existential aspects of no matter how bad something is, you always have a choice to become bitter through the process or to stay open and tender in the process. And we all know this from our experience. So all of that is a way to say mental illness, no matter how severe, is not completely determinative. It's not not causally closed for how humans respond. We always have a choice to respond in any situation and say, I'm going to get bitter and closed off, or I'm going to stay open to life, light, and love. So I don't know. That's sort of more of, I'm trying to reach for it because I do think it's still an early question we're all trying to ask. But at least for me, those are what I see to be markers of what flourishing may look like. No, I think that's a really good answer. I think it's a really good answer. I I mean, I've struggled with depression and I had a therapist, so I didn't continue seeing, but she said to me, I guess I was speaking in a way like, I have to get rid of this thing so that I can start living my life. That's not exactly what I was saying, but that was the narrative I was spinning. I was like, well, I tried this and then I tried this and I tried this and it didn't help. And she sort of retooled the narrative in a way, 
again, not saying this exact words, but of just hello, darkness, my old friend. Like (laughs) this is going to be something that will be with you on your journey. Sometimes it'll be very salient part, sometimes in the distance, but sort of thinking of it as companion, as a part of life and not as this like essential thing that I have to wait until I can deal with this before I can start doing anything or pursuing beauty or pursuing what I want to do. I mean, it can be a hindrance, of course. We can only take it one day at a time and do what we can do. But that was helpful for me to think of it that way. Yeah, I think also this is, we can actually draw from psychological science for an answer here too, building off of what you're saying. In the world of psychopathology, the DSM and the diagnosis of mental health, I mean, the DSM started as a slender little book back in the mid-1900s. And now it's this massive book because we keep exploring all these new diagnoses. Seems like the mind, unlike the body, is endless in its variance of producing all sorts of new mental illness. And the unique thing is the comorbidity, is that unlike the body, the mind has so much comorbidity. Like almost all of the diagnoses can be comorbid with one another, which is just not the case for the body. There's some some illnesses that prohibit other pathologies in the body. That's not as true for the mind. So what psychologists have done is said, hey, let's look at the common features across all these different diagnoses, whether it's borderline, post-traumatic stress, anxiety, depression, personality disorders, whatever it is. And what they find is one major category, to speak to what you're saying, is distress intolerance. The inability to accept and be okay with not being okay. That's a common feature of psychological distress and pathology. And so many of these third wave behavioral therapies today are all about helping people to really accept, have the courage to accept the suffering and to not wait for it to be fixed, to move on with life. I think there's such a dignity and a beauty and a moral virtue when people say, like you said, hello, darkness, my old friend, like, even though this is here, I'm going to you know, this is here, this is real, and I'm still going to live. I'm still going to go out and live. It's great. So the last question I had on our list, we sort of addressed when we're talking about the book, but we'll see if you just want to, there's anything you want to add? How can a Christian community become more supportive of those struggling with mental health problems? Obviously, I want to, you know, shamelessly promote and cite the book and say find answers there, but also I think just a main takeaway would be mental health, both in the Christian and outside the Christian world, just in all of human experience, mental health has been stigmatized for so long. And historically, there have almost never been advances in our treatment and our betterment for people with mental health issues without making a step first of destigmatizing their experience. So I think one major way the church could support people is just to say, hey, we do not have an ableist view of the mind here. We're not under any illusions that mental health is this homogenous thing that most of us have, and then just a few of us don't have it. Actually, we're all on a spectrum of some mental health, some mental illness. It's like the body. So I would say churches could just really help by saying, we expect mental illness to be in this church. And this is a good safe space for you if you have that. Having it mentally together is not a precondition for membership in this social community or access to God in this social community. I think that's the biggest thing churches could do. Yeah, especially because social anxiety is a big part of it's already so hard to go and be in a group, especially post-COVID, right? When we're re-entering spaces now too. 
And if you have any kind of mental health challenge, social anxiety can feel very intimidating. Even if that's just named, it's helpful. Massively. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I guess that's another thing is just be willing to talk about it because you can't heal what you haven't named. So it just takes away the power of things, the shame of things to just be able to name it. So true. So true. Well, thank you, Preston. You've been immensely helpful. I thought you might be the perfect person to talk to and you were even more perfect than you were. You were also be. the perfect person to talk to today. <laughs> I honestly really appreciate it. It was really, our conversation went super, super long, which I think is a sign of something good. 